In Psalm 86, the psalmist writes, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. We've been looking at the matter of community, specifically Christian practices that build and sustain Christian community. And so far we've looked at two such practices, gratitude, promise-making, and promise-keeping. There may be some who might wonder, are you saying, Damon, that only Christians can practice gratitude or promise-making and keeping, the practices that we have yet to study in this series? And my answer would be no. Let me make three points in trying to explain what I mean. First of all, Christian practices are to be rooted in practical Christian theology. So, like other human beings, we may practice gratitude. But as God's people, our gratitude is to be in response to his grace. As one theologian put it, grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. If, in fact, the essence of God is grace, then the essence of human beings as God's people should be gratitude. When we more fully understand the grace that we have been given, we are able to turn outward in gratitude and generosity. And so gratitude becomes our home in the presence of God. So the Christian practice of gratitude is quite different from other forms of gratitude, if you wish. And it's much more than merely saying thank you. Gratitude involves knowing that we are held secure by a loving God and that the God we worship is trustworthy despite the nearly unbearable sorrow we may encounter along the way. So, an unbeliever, a non-believer, may in fact be grateful, but not as a worshiper of the triune God. That is, he or she may say thank you, and they may in fact mean it, but they are not engaged in the Christian practice of gratitude. Then consider the matter of promise-making and promise-keeping. Am I saying that only Christians make and keep promises? And the answer is obviously no. In fact, I think some, by experience, could say that non-Christians seem to be better at it sometimes than Christians do. But we saw several Sundays ago that we are the people of the promise. We are called to be the people of God. And so we are to follow his example. And in scripture, God is presented as the one who makes and keeps his promises. The biblical story is a long account of promises, of covenants, and of God's faithfulness. In the Bible, we see God's promises at work. And through those promises, through the Lord Jesus, we become the people of God. And who is this Jesus? Through whom we become the people of God? Well, Paul puts it this way, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is to say, Jesus stands as the fulfillment of God's promises. That is to be the basis of our identity. When we make promises and keep promises, in some ways we could say, well, you're doing something very human. But on the other hand, as the people of God, we are doing something that is to mark us as the people of God those who worship the God who makes and keeps promises. We also saw that we are people of the covenant, in contrast to being people of the contract. 
In scripture, we see that promises and covenants are closely connected. But today, I think in our society, we tend to put promises more closely with contracts. And part of the reason is that contracts are more desirable, if you wish, because they tend to be very narrow in their focus. The relationship between the parties involved tends to be very narrow. It only is with regard to this one particular transaction, or perhaps a series of transactions, but nothing beyond that. And unfortunately, in our society, contracts have built into them um, the possibility of breaking the contract breaking the promise. And yes, there are consequences, there are penalties to be paid, but it is permitted. That might be okay if you're purchasing an appliance and it breaks down. But that is not adequate as a foundation for building and sustaining a Christian community. We are people of the covenant, not the contract. I'm tempted at some point when we finish this series, to come back and revisit this, because I would argue, I was talking to Ziv's dad afterwards, um, that the Christian faith in the 20th century, particularly in the United States, has in fact been redefined as contractual, as transactional. We say a prayer, God saves us, and because he saves us, we get to go to heaven. And for some time, I don't think people are arguing about this anymore, there were those who argued, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. In other words, a very narrow contract, and then if later on you want to sort of expand the contract and say, okay, I'll accept you as Lord, it's a very transactional type of thinking as opposed to covenantal. The second thing I would say, that's just the first, is that without practical theology, we are left with sentimentality. You may, in fact, have Christians doing Christian practices, but without a theological foundation, it's simply reduced to warm, fuzzy feelings, if you wish. It's just a sentimentality. Sentimental practices lack any real substance. There is to be theology as well as practice, and there is to be practice and theology together. We should not have a practice-free theology, we should not have a theology-neutral practice. I think what has happened in the church is, over the years, we maintain the vocabulary, but the substance, the foundations beneath it, are gone. And so it's just sheer sentimentality. Gratitude, promise-making and keeping, simply become sentimental things that we do. We long for the old days when a man's word was his bond. I have no sense that, oh, God is the God who makes and keeps promises. I am his child, therefore I should make and keep promises as well. The third thing, trust me, I, I will get to what I want to say later. Um, you may wonder, because I certainly have, these practices are all nice and all, you know, gratitude, promise making, promise keeping. It's nice when people are grateful. It's nice when they keep their promises. But how does this build and sustain the Christian community? How does this build and sustain a Christian congregation, a church? I've been wondering that for the past five weeks myself. But consider the negative possibility. That is, what are the results if we don't have these things? 
Or what if these things have become twisted? If we don't think that gratitude is important in building and sustaining communities and relationships, what is the effect or what are the effects of ingratitude in relationships and in communities? And if we don't think that making promises and keeping promises will build and sustain communities and relationships, what is the effect or what are the effects of breaking promises or of failing to make promises? Christian practices are to be rooted in Christian theology. That's why we identify them as Christian practices. Practices are at the heart of all human communities. I think all human communities have rituals. They have practices. They have certain things that set them apart as, oh yes, we are a specific group. This is what we do as part of this group. As Christians, we are the body of Christ. We are the congregation. Here we are the church on Melrose. And our practices are to be understood as responses to God's grace. God's grace that we have already experienced in Jesus Christ, who is the yes to all of God's promises. Today we look at a third practice. Truthfulness or living truthfully, or simply put, telling the truth. One of the amazing pictures of community is found in the book of Acts, in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And we read really quite amazing things, things that we would wish for and long for. In chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give any, to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money to the, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought, it, or brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What we read here is of a close-knit community. It's marked by powerful outreach, by life-changing preaching, miraculous healings, and more. But above all, it is a community, a Christian community with Christian practices. Nothing in the story prepares us for what comes next in our text in Acts chapter 5. Though by now, we are familiar with the story. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first 11 verses here in Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The story seems straightforward. Seeking to emulate the example of others, like Barnabas, who had sold property and then given the money to the apostles, this husband and wife team decide that they are going to conspire. They're going to say that they got X amount of money for it, when in fact they got more than that. They're going to keep back part of the proceeds. First Ananias lies and he dies. Then Sapphira lies and she dies as well. In both cases, they die after being confronted and admonished by Peter. What happened to that beautiful community, that sense of unity, Christian practices? What happened? Losing members to sudden death for what might seem to be minor infractions is not what we want to see in terms of signs and wonders. Certainly not something that a congregation would advertise. The response seems disproportionate because if you think about it, the man who is confronting them and admonishing them is the same man who denied that he knew the Lord Jesus and lied about his relationship to Jesus of Nazareth. And yet now he's the leader of the church. So Ananias and Sapphira tell a little lie about money and yet they are killed. What makes their offense so different or so much worse? After all, they did give some of the money. They did give a portion of the money to the congregation. No one was required to give all the money. It wasn't a requirement. No one was required to sell what they had to give it to the apostles. It was a purely voluntary act. And as Peter tells them, it was well within the rights to keep a part of the money for themselves. What they did was they sought to deceive the church. They sought to deceive the community. And in almost a utopian view of community living, it is suddenly shattered by deception and lying. Some things to consider before we move on. I don't want to overplay this, but if you know Luke at all, he sees patterns in the Old Testament and sort of brings them into play in his writings, in both the Gospel and in Acts. And I see a similarity between what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden 
and what happens here in the church. It's not to say that the church was perfect, but certainly the, the, paint, the picture that Luke paints is idyllic, and then suddenly you have a serpent, if you wish. Actually, there is no serpent, but you do have an Adam and Eve. You have a husband and a wife, and you have a lie in the midst of this idyllic situation. One writer put it this way, that what they did was dreadful because it broke the bond of unity in the new creation. The church is the new creation. And now you have deception in the midst of it. Something else to think about before we move on, and that is how early lying and deception comes into the church. Um, I think it's been with us all along. But we may think that it's maybe only in our generation or in our century or in this country. But in fact, we see from fairly early on, deception and lying is something that seeks to come into the community. And if you want to build and sustain community, it is devastating. It is something that destroys a sense of community. I think also we should be thankful that our lies don't usually meet with sudden death. Um, but we should benefit from their example and take it to heart. We all want to be good or at least appear to be good because we compare ourselves to others and we often come up short. And so we are prone then to hypocrisy, duplicity and deception. So let's talk about truthfulness. The place of truthfulness we may struggle with it, and yet, to a certain degree, we take it for granted. It would be difficult, to say the least, to do anything together, whether in a household, in a neighborhood, but let's talk about us as the people of God, as a congregation, if we cannot assume that people are going to be truthful with us. Thomas Aquinas wrote, It would be impossible for me to live together for men to live together unless they believed one another as declaring the truth to one another. Yet, as one writer put it, to reap the benefits of lying and deception, it has to be performed within a social system that values and expects truthfulness. If you expect people to be truthful, that's when a lie really works. If you don't expect people to tell the truth, then the power of deception is really weakened because people are already on their guard. We will see in, in a few minutes that truthfulness is countercultural in our day. But people also depend on it to a large degree. The assumption that other people are telling the truth. When you read the label on a product, you're assuming that they're telling you the truth. When you buy something from someone, when you listen to someone's story, when you watch the news, well, there we might pull up a bit short. See, we might be inclined to agree with what the prophet wrote in Isaiah. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. But we are the people of God. And as Paul tells us in Romans 3, let God be true and every human being a liar. God is the God of truth. Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he tells them, and I will ask the Father and he will send you another advocate to help you 
and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. As the people of God, we should want to live and love truth. I do think at this point, this is where a lot of people get sidetracked, and particularly theologians when it comes to the matter of truthfulness. And the issue that comes up is, is it ever right to tell a lie? And then, of course, you know, if the Nazis came to your house and you're hiding Jews, and they say, are you hiding Jews, should you tell a lie and say no, or should you tell the truth because we're supposed to be truthful? As interesting as that discussion may be, it's really quite narrow when it comes to looking at the truth. When Jesus proclaims that he is the way, the truth, and the life, I think it points to something more than hiding Jews in the basement or in the attic. I think he's talking about a relationship and the potential for communion. It's interesting that even when you go back to the rules, if you wish, the Ten Commandments, it addresses the issue of truthfulness in terms of relationship. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The commandment is do not lie. It is do not give false testimony against your neighbor. That's in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, we hear Paul writing to the Colossians, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. The focus when it comes to truthfulness is relationship. It isn't simply a narrow sense of telling the truth. I think that is important. But I, if we're not careful, that will distract us from something that is far more significant and far more important. And then there is the matter of truthfulness and the community. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lays out God's plan for the church. And he begins, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Speaking of community there, unity and the bond of peace. He closes the section with these words. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, and that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So when we speak of truthfulness, we should keep in the front of our minds the issue of relationships as opposed to narrowing it down to a true or false quiz in which are you going to tell the truth or not. The second thing I want you to consider is the nature of truthfulness. When we say that someone is truthful, generally we mean that there's a close correspondence between what they say and what they do. But when it comes to truth-telling, we tend to view it as a one-time event. Um, truthfulness may be more long-term, more of a character uh, issue, but that if someone is truthful, uh, someone has told the truth, then they have, in this one instance, told 
told us the truth. But there's much more involved, as I've just said. Truthful living also involves patience, forgiveness, and interdependence. In the Psalms, the King James usually translates the word emeth from Hebrew as truth. But in the newer translations, it is found as faithfulness. So, in what I read to you at the beginning from Psalm 84, the King James has, Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The NIV has, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The word emeth in Hebrew has a wide range of meaning, including stability, truth, trustworthiness, faithfulness, and verity. And when it comes to the character of God, and we are the people of God, truthfulness and faithfulness are bound together. They're not seen as two separate issues. Paul raises this in Romans 3. I read to you verse 4 a minute ago. Let me read to you verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. So we can say that truthfulness plus faithfulness equals being true. But one might wonder, how does one define what is truth? And here some would point to factual accuracy. That if, in fact, you say it's 76 degrees when it's actually 78, you have not told the truth. You have not been factually accurate. Others point to reliability. Are you someone that can be relied on? Some would define a lie as an offense against trust. That is a relationship. Others as an offense against truth. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Truthfulness and faithfulness involve reliability as well as factual accuracy. But above all, truth is found in a person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. When we neglect that person, when we neglect that truth, then we exchange the truth for a lie and choose a way of death rather than life. We turn our backs on him who is the way, the truth, the life. In some ways, some people would say that this whole discussion is, is moot. Am I using it the right way? Because they believe that all truth is whatever you think it is. So that if you were to say to someone, make it some type of declaration, they would say, well, that's your truth. That's true for you, but that's not true for me. Augustine said centuries ago, all truth is God's truth. That which is true comes from God. As God's people, we should see truth as anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if someone says, well, I reject Jesus, then we would say, well, then you have rejected the truth. The third thing I want to look at is the truth as countercultural. We live in a time when concerns about truthfulness are undermined by the culture's emphasis on image, success, litigation, and personal affirmation. 
one could make the case that the primary concern now tends to be, will it fly, as opposed to, is it true? I think we need to recognize, and I'm pretty sure that we do, that we live in a social environment with a fairly high level of dishonesty and distrust. It's what we come to expect. One of the challenges, if we are going to be practicing truth, truthfulness, truthful living, to build and sustain community, what are the things that are in our way? What are, in fact, the obstacles, the challenges in contemporary life that make it more difficult? I'll suggest a few. The first one, I think I could say one word and you would get the picture. Photoshop. Christine Pohl, who has written about the community, says, when friends Photoshop their vacation pictures and photos of fashion models bear little resemblance to actual human beings, it is hard to know what counts as true or why it even matters. We must face the fact that many of the new technologies make deception much easier. We can create alternate personas, we can fabricate stories, and we can disseminate them widely. But let's face it, we don't need technology for us to do such things. Even without its assistance in telling our story, we may in fact embellish, exaggerate, leave out certain details that might be embarrassing. Our, our commitment to truthful living is regularly challenged by the experience that whoever offers the most clever soundbite seems to win. Oz Guinness tells a story uh, that Jay Leno tells a story that when he was an up-and-coming uh, comedian, he was on a daytime TV show and they were going to have him come out and do a bit there and so the, the leader of the band said, listen, I need to know what your last joke is going to be or can you give me a cue so I'll know when to start the music up, music up so there's no dead space there. And he thought and he said, I know, I'll say, thank you, thank you very much. Okay? So, show went on, he came out, and he told his first joke, and, and the crowd went wild. And I think he may have told a second joke, and the response was overwhelming. And so he said, thank you, thank you very much. And the band leader put out a cigarette real quick, and he had the band going, and that was it. That was the end of his, his gig there, because the band was playing. It's a funny story. It's in Jay Leno's book. The only thing is it never happened to him. It happened to another comedian. And Jay bought the story from him for $1,000 so that it could be his story. It is a funny story, but it's not his story. And I would argue that living when and where we do, these are the challenges we face day after day. We give dishonesty more benign names. We no longer tell lies, one writer put it. We misspeak. We exaggerate. We are economical with the truth. Impression management seems to be the rage, and the truth suffers as a result. 
I think a second challenge is the thinking, whatever it takes. We tend to be a can-do people as Americans. We're very pragmatic. And so if you need to do something, if, if something is important, if a job needs to get done, um, then, then perhaps you might need to cut corners. You might need to be dishonest. If a job is important enough or if the outcome is good enough, people are often comfortable with employing or overlooking small deceptions and lies. Getting the job done, it has a ring of commitment and energy, but it leaves moral questions unanswered. Christine Pohl, who, as I've mentioned, has written on this, teaches in a seminary, and she writes that occasionally she encounters a seminarian's cheating. When you know, this, what the seminarian will do one of two things. Either they sort of plagiarize, they sort of cut and paste and put a paper together and turn it in, or they turn in somebody else's work as their own. When she confronts them, the most disturbing response, she said, is that he or she will say that they didn't have enough time to get the job done because of the work that they had to do at church. That the work week was full of church things, and so... To get the job done, they had to cut some corners in order to get the assignment in. We tend to be outraged when other people do it, not so much when we do it. We don't call it deception, but it is. Then in our society, there is the concern about self-esteem. In a culture obsessed with self-esteem, self uh, self-esteem, I misspoke there. I'm reminded Ken Meyer said that someone in a fourth grade class, had the teacher had them draw paintings and, about self-esteem, and this one kid wrote self of steam. And um, I think there's more truth to that than we realize. Um, when we are obsessed with self-esteem, accomplishments and abilities are t- sometimes overstated. That someone is great when in fact... No, maybe they're good, which isn't bad, but we don't want them to feel like they're average. We want them to feel that they're above average. The colleague at UCLA who attended college in the 1960s and then in the 1980s decided to go back and get her graduate degree, and so she wrote back and asked for her transcripts, and there was a note attached to the transcript. You need to know that all grades from the 60s and earlier are much lower than the grades in the 70s and the 80s because of grade inflation. Um, I must confess that I'm guilty of that. Um, It's not for the matter of self-esteem. I just don't think ultimately grades are that important. What I want is for people to learn and, and not to be obsessed with grades. But when we tell people they're great and they're not, I think there are two possible consequences. One is, somewhere down the line, someone's going to tell them the truth. And it's going to be devastating. The second is, when everyone tells them they're great, or when someone tells them they're great, they begin to feel entitled. Don't you know who I am? And it's not truthful. It does not bear any resemblance oftentimes to reality. The last thing, and I think this is something that we need to take to heart, and that is fragmentation. 
Many, if not most of us, experience our daily lives in fragments. There's a place where we live. There's a place where we work. There's a place where we worship. A place perhaps where we study. A place where we shop. A place where we play. The result is, because these places are oftentimes not close together, I can be a different person in each one of these places. And I meet a whole different group of people in each of these places. And there is a very strong temptation to be less than truthful. Community is strengthened and sustained when we are people marked by truthfulness. The Lord willing, we will look at this further next Sunday. Let's pray together. God of all truth, we are your people but we confess that we are not always truthful. We who are followers of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, do not always live truthful lives. Oftentimes we play semantic games with what is true and fail to recognize the place of relationship if we are to build and sustain a sense of community here at Melrose. By your grace, may we be truthful people. May we be grateful people. May we be people who make and keep promises. I thank you for this time together that we could come together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.